coming up next, Trailer Talk with Sabrina Artel. Stay tuned. Support comes from Sullivan NY Connects, offering information and assistance regarding long-term services and supports for people of all ages or with any type of disability. nyconnects.ny.gov. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline travel trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. Stay tuned for a classic edition of Trailer Talk from the archives. I'm excited to be speaking with writer Chris Krauss about her most recent novel, Torpor, published by Semiotext. She is also the author of Aliens and Anorexia, I Love Dick, and Video Green, Los Angeles Art, and the Triumph of Nothingness. Torpor is an amazing novel about a couple, Sylvie and Jerome, and the disintegration of many things, including their marriage, their coupleness. It's about the disappearance and collapse of communism, of political idealism, the avant-garde, the idea of home. And this is all set against the backdrop of their upstate New York, Thurman, New York home and the world at war. And this novel torpor is very, very funny as it's dealing with all of these ideas. And it is really my pleasure to welcome you, Chris Krause, to our show. Hi, thank you. So let's begin with this idea of torpor, which is written about throughout the book. You include this word in sentence after sentence throughout your novel. I guess it's a funny word to use for upstate New York because torpor comes from torpid, you know, the torpid steaminess of the tropics. But it's a sense of lugubriousness, of being so heavy with weight and with content, and in their case, with history, that you simply can't move. And also being the couple part, caught within a bubble of their own making. I mean, I think that's true of couples in general, that every couple creates their own little universe. This couple's universe was particularly hermetic and sealed and not interactive at all with the outside world. And a coupleness or a bubble, as you're describing these characters of Sylvie and Jerome, that is haunted, haunted by their past, and in particular, Jerome's past as a Holocaust survivor, and Sylvie's attempt to move through these so-called ghosts. You write through Sylvie this feeling that she has of trying to almost swim through these memories. It's like swimming through an ocean of molasses, right? It's so thick and it's so heavy. And, you know, we talk about ghosts, and that's, that's certainly in the book. They pick this dying town in upstate New York, the town of Thurman, because they wanted a place where they could sort of live in a world of ghosts. And so they found this town. They're moving here, of course, from the Lower East Side of Manhattan at a very lively period in the city. And they find this town to be, you know, completely frozen in time and memory. It's a dead and a dying place. And since they themselves on a certain level are dying, it fits them perfectly. 
And both Thurman, this town you're describing in upstate New York in the Adirondacks, and also the world around them is dying in a sense. Thurman becomes this rootedness, even as you're describing it as a kind of a death, or I think at one point Sylvie describes Jerome taking an early funeral. (laughs) Well, Thurman is an illusion of rootedness for them. I spent time in upstate New York. I lived in upstate New York for a period of time, starting in 87 and then intermittently during the 90s. When we arrived there in 87, it really was an alternate universe. You know, the old-timers who had been born and grown up and lived there during the Depression and walked seven miles to work through the woods, they were all still alive and there and logging, sometimes with horses and keeping animals. And it was a truly magical universe. And anybody who came there at that time, really, there was an influx of hippies from cities, I guess, at the end of the 60s. And those people quickly found that they had to adapt and become Thermonites because it was so difficult to live up there. There was so, you know, it was not a cash economy. It was partly a barter economy like Appalachia. And, you know, very cold, very difficult. And so the only thing to do was to adapt and become a Thermonite. You know, having the house over a period of years, I really saw it change. And that generation of people dying off and going to nursing homes in Glens Falls and the next generation coming in who are much more mobile, cable television came to Thurman, Internet came to Thurman, more jobs came to Glens Falls, so it became more like a commute thing between the mountains and Glens Falls. Mm -hmm. And the culture changed completely. It just became sort of, you know, a, a distant suburb of American culture rather than a world to itself. And, of course, you know, for me, lost all of its beauty. You could have been anywhere. You could have been outside of Cleveland. You could have been in any kind of ex-rural part of America. You lived in Thurman, and the character Sylvie, Torp was written in the third person and through the, the voice of Sylvie. What is the connection, and why did you decide to use Thurman as the backdrop for this malaise that they're experiencing, these characters of Sylvie and Jerome, and, and really as as this symbol of the dislocation? Well, um, the character's name is Sylvie, but it's certainly no secret that Sylvie is Chris. The novel, like most of my writing, is pretty directly autobiographical. And that's not to say it's a memoir. It's not a memoir, but I write out of the material in my life. And I have written in past books, I've written it in the first person. In this book, it didn't feel right to to use the first person. And I think maybe it's because, oddly, it's because the book is more personal that I couldn't use the first person. I'm writing this about a past time. The book is set in 1991, most of it. So it's retrospective. And, of course, you're never the same person 10 or 15 years later than you were at the time or 20 years later. You're a different person. And I had to really feel free to treat the old Chris and the old Jerome slash Sylvia as if they were puppets, as if they were characters. And that means really making fun of them, turning them into clowns at a certain point and letting them be as ridiculous as people can be. And you can't quite do that in the first person. There's something that's so that would feel so self-deprecating about it. If you said the same things about the people in the first person, if you say I this or I that, it's very different than she this or she that. The book is written by old Sylvie, you know, slash old Chris, looking back at young Sylvie. And I was able to be much freer to poke fun at the couple by putting them in the third person. But there was no reason 
to change the name of the town. You know, I was writing directly about the town, about real people in the town, so I didn't change those names at all. And I write about people in the art world as well, and I kept all of the artist names as they were. What is this idea of them becoming the clowns? Because Torpor is hysterically funny, and it's really a satire, it seems, as well, of this search in these characters' lives for something that's grounded and the impossibility of that and what ensues with these travels and they're going from their rental places in Thurman and upstate New York to the Hamptons and commuting to New York City for various things and then traveling to Europe in search of a baby in Romania. I think like all of the best comedies, it takes place in the wake of incredible tragedy. (laughs) You know, um, these are characters sort of like mucking through an impossible situation, trying to sort of create happiness out of absolute impossibility around them. Their fantasies, I guess, their dreams of happiness are the wrong dreams of happiness. But the world that they live in has become incredibly ill-suited to those dreams. You know, they see both of them having been great believers in the art world, in the avant-garde. They were part of an art world that really was a world into itself um, that was its own reality, and seeing that world become absorbed into it, you know, they're kind of old-school people having to confront this vast homogenization of culture at that time, 1991. I kind of picked 91 as a turning point in the culture. You know, the copy for the book says that it's uh, post-MTV and pre-AOL, and it was also, of course, the fall of the Soviet bloc, all of the East European countries. And I really think that was a pivotal time. Everybody knew that the world was changing at that time somehow, but nobody could quite see exactly how. And in our sort of comedic and clown-like idealism, we always like to believe that it's changing for the best, even though experience and history usually teach us otherwise. You know, in the case of the book, there was all of this early stuff about the Internet, and people were applying the same sort of utopian idealism to the possibilities of the Internet as they had to cable television five or six years before, when, of course, exactly the same thing always happens. It starts as a grassroots movement with a lot of energy and a lot of kind of entrepreneurial, pioneering vision, and it's very quickly absorbed into a larger corporate mainstream culture. What about the collapse of community coming from the performance world and a world of a sense of community in the East Village and Lower East Side of New York City and needing to leave that because of this collapse? Were there greater themes of a loss of how one identifies or fits into a community and finds a home, even an artistic one, that you were writing about in Torpor? Absolutely. You know, I think that community is like beauty. Um, Both of them are sort of based on a kind of exclusion. If you're going to do this, then you can't do that. If you're going to be part of a community, you have to live here and not five other places at the same time. You know, the beauty of Thurman that I found in the late 80s was this kind of incredible... People were very poor, of course, but there was this incredible accretion of culture and history and memory. You know, every corner fence post had a story and everybody knew these stories and they were passed on orally and that was because people stayed in the same place and didn't move and i mean i think that's the definition of culture itself it's a kind of human history that agglomerates just simply by people kind of living in the same place with each other and there being a continuity 
Mm-hmm. And that, of course, all fell apart. Most people now live in several places, and when we can be anywhere, anytime, and consequently think we should be everywhere all the time, and that, of course, ends up equaling being nowhere. These layers of trying to make sense of a life, you know, and of Sylvie writing her trying to make sense of their lives. And you write in the Anthropology of Unhappiness chapter. You write, the grief of the war will always hang over me, she thought, and Jerome and Laura and maybe even Ginny. The war affects everyone it touches. Long after the events themselves, the effects will linger, and these effects live on by breeding other causes. In the novel Torpor, one of these causes becomes the quest to adopt a Romanian baby. In the midst of the collapse of the Eastern Bloc, in the midst of the war, and at a time when foreigners weren't allowed to adopt Romanian babies. Well, of course, the idea that they're going to adopt a baby is a great joke. There's a big joke at the heart of that quest, right? First of all, it's illegal. They don't even know this. I mean, they know so little about adoption. (laughs) They don't know that adoption in Romania has been outlawed for six months before they get there, and they're likely, if they're successful, to end up in prison. Also, you know, they've had abortions together. They have this air of trauma that hangs over them that's largely a result of Jerome's background as a child survivor of the Holocaust, which has really determined everything for him and for their life together as a couple. So they go to Romania via a tour of Eastern Europe so that Jerome can see the Eastern Bloc one last time before it changes forever, with no other preparation than an empty nylon zipper bag. Idea being that which if they is, get an infant, Which is Sylvie's dogs, right? Lily's bag, her dog carrier. Right, right. At that time, before ultra-security at the airports, they're actually able to bring the dog, sneak the dog through security in an island zipper bag, and they think, well, the same might be true of a baby. We can get an infant, we can just pop him or her in the zipper bag and breathe through customs. They didn't, part of their insulation, their bubble was this incredible arrogance and believing that none of the normal rules should apply to them. So, of course, they didn't contact any adoption agencies. They found this very hokey or any lawyers or, or any institutions that are there to make this possible. They thought they'd just do it on their own. Jerome, of course, the other joke at the heart of it is that Jerome has absolutely no intention of ever adopting a child. He just wants to appease his younger wife, you know, who's been harping on and on and on about having a baby. And he thinks if they take this trip and Maybe they can make friends with some impoverished family and make an arrangement like Save the Children where they send a check every month, and that will shut her up. She'll get a wallet-sized photo of the kid. So it's this attempt to lessen, would you say, the burden of history and these memories that they have? Well, she desperately wants to have a baby because she's starting to realize seven or eight or nine years into this relationship with Jerome that it's a very dead bubble, and the only way that they can keep their little fantasy world together alive is if they add a third person, and a dog will no longer do. It's got to be a human baby. What is the connection for you as a writer to your past as a performer and a filmmaker? Is there a connection between an idea of breaking down the fourth wall and avant-garde performance? Yeah, I really I really think that, Sabrina. You know, I started writing kind of late in my life, and when I finally did start writing my first book, I Love Dick, I really felt that writing was the same thing as performing, except instead of immediately being in front of the audience, you're having this kind of little micro-performance, you and the page, you're performing something 
to a later audience, you know? Mm -hmm. But that the act of writing itself was like performing. You're going into a state and you're writing it down that will then be witnessed by the reader. And that gives things, you know, at least in my mind, it gives things a very live and immediate and direct quality. How would you define memoir? Well, I think maybe a novel wants to address the problems of the world, and a memoir is more interested in the problems of the person, of the individual. Mm -hmm. The job of the memoir is to sort of excavate the history of this person, the I in the memoir, and show their character arc, their transformation, how the I comes to some certain realization about itself. I've never believed that there's any kind of moment, there's no penultimate recognition, of course. Life is very fluxy, and reality and the I and identity is constantly changing as circumstances change. So I'm much more interested in sort of charting how that individual moves through the world. And so the problems of Sylvie and Jerome interpret are not problems that can be solved through therapy or through psychoanalysis or by, you know, becoming better and stronger people because the problems are endemic in the world that they live in. And how do you solve that? You know, a person doesn't, to my mind, an individual doesn't exist apart from the world that they live in, their community. And so the novel has to be both of those things. It can be the small community like Thurman or the global community, which is kind of what I try and address by describing the world as it was in 1991, you know, an entire culture. And this is also at a time when Sylvie is about to turn 35, and this is, as described by her, a very pivotal moment in her life. And she's sensing a huge transition. Oh, absolutely, because, you know, the the sort of drama and crisis of your 30s is you sort of, like, look up from, you know, your kind of underground borough that you've been in, and you see that, like, everybody else has gotten it together, or at least is pretending to have gotten it together, Everybody else's lives look really good on paper, and you feel this terrible pressure to create for yourself a life that looks good on paper. And I think by the time you're 40, you just kind of give up, and you realize that none of those lives that look so perfect on paper really are, and you just have to live your own life, whatever it is. At what point did you begin to write? Not until I was 39 years old. So how did you do it? I think I've been sort of in training to be a writer for 10 or 15 years before I actually started writing. In my very early life, I had been a newspaper reporter before leaving New Zealand where I grew up and and moving to New York to try and be an actress. I did have that great experience that a daily newspaper gives you of like, you have to turn in the copy, turn in the copy. There's none of that anxiety of the blank white page, you know? You just have to do it, do it, do it. And... Once I moved to New York to become a performer and got involved in the art world, it became impossible for me to write because I didn't know what I was writing. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know who would be speaking, right? So every time I tried to keep a diary or do any little bit of writing, that sort of unsolved question of who is speaking Mm. really held me back and haunted it. I finally started writing when I was 39 because what I was doing at the time which was making movies. Um, I had made a feature film that was co-produced between New Zealand and the States and Canada. took three and a half years, completely exhausting, money-draining experience. And it ended up a bust. You know, it didn't get distribution. It was like it never happened. The whole three and a half years and the sort of destitution was a complete waste because if a feature film doesn't get distributed, it may as well have never been made. And around that point when I was realizing that the movie was going belly up, 
um, Sylvia, my husband, and I had a dinner with this colleague of his named Dick. And Dick flirted with me during this dinner. And I was at such a low point in my life that just the very fact that someone flirting with me was an incredible event and was so exciting. And I felt like somehow he'd opened a conversation that I wanted to continue, but I was very shy and I didn't know how to continue it. So I wrote him a letter. And as soon as I finished the first letter, I realized that, oh, you know, there's, I left some parts out. I, Let me try again. And I wrote a second letter. And then a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth. And within two weeks, I'd written maybe 200 pages. So obviously, I was desperately needing to talk to somebody at that time. And by having this sort of crazy infatuation with this person, Dick, I'd at least found someone, some hypothetical person who I could talk to. And when you're talking to someone, you don't even care anymore who you are. It doesn't matter because what you're saying is so important and you're so focused on the listener that you completely transcend that self-consciousness. Well, Dick kind of gave that to me. You know, this this infatuation gave me that experience Mm -hmm. of being able to get far enough out of myself that I was just really focused on what I was talking about. Well, the letters eventually turned into a book. And when I finished that book, I just found that it was very easy for me to continue writing. The ideas and Turper began all the way when I started I Love Dick. And when I began I Love Dick, I always knew that it would take three books to do what I wanted to do. And the second book in this series is called Aliens and Anorexia. And I always knew that in the third book, Torpor, I was going to sort of go back and get into the real situation that read this impossible project of the couples, Chris and Sylvia, writing love letters to a third party. And I knew that I wanted to deal in a much more direct psychological way with the life of the couple. So all of these ideas were present when I started writing. I also, over the years, have written a lot about art and, you know, felt, you know, though on the one hand I know very little about art, I felt very qualified to do it because that had been my milieu for such a long time. I'd been around art and artists And I knew the stakes of that game and the language and the vocabulary and and the goals of artists. So those became really easy things for me to write about. Also, it would be false to say that this writing erupted completely out of nowhere, because all the years when I wasn't writing, I was just reading constantly. You know, I read everything. I read everything. So when I write, I also feel like I have this huge bank of past reading to draw on, and I really feel like writing, you know, just like the ghost thing in Torpor, I feel like writing is always sort of informed by the ghosts of other writers that you've read. And I often feel when I'm writing that I'm kind of writing in somebody else's footprints, you know, a writer maybe whose, whose tone of voice has gotten inside of me. And maybe it won't even be recognizable to the reader, but I feel that I'm kind of ghosting that writer, writing in his or her footsteps. And whose footsteps would you say you were following in Torpor? Well, I've stalked Henry James. I think I was stalking Henry James, improbably enough, when I wrote I Love Dick. In Torpor, I was very much stalking Flaubert. Mm -hmm. The writings of Flaubert influenced me hugely. And that really sort of clear and direct crystalline prose that can, like, take in the landscape, take in the situation of the people, that can turn the people into clowns and yet make you feel such compassion for them. That's something that I really would like to think I'm borrowing from Flaubert. Chris, would you read for us from Torpor? Okay. Um, Post-punk, pre-grunge. 
the United States stands behind its president to support our troops somewhere in a Persian Gulf sandstorm. Sylvie and Jerome have never felt so alienated. Because the world itself is now unfathomable, the only complexities that really count are small moments of domestic life that combine to trigger deep emotion. There is no longer any way of being poor in any interesting way in major cities like Manhattan. It is the beginning of the new world order, which means that wars can now be fought and won without any U.S. military casualties. Yellow ribbons line the road on trees from Brant Lake to New York City. Yellow ribbons, a symbol of America's Norman Rockwell past, salvaged just in time by Reagan speechwriter Peggy Noonan, had long ago bedecked front porches, mailboxes, and office doors during the First World War. In those times, the yellow ribbon symbolized a nation's willingness to put aside its minor differences, racial lynchings, union busting, the accumulating wealth of trust conglomerates, and join hands across the great divide to pray our boys will come home safely. And then again after the black October stock market crash of 1987, the Ladies' Home Journal leapt to restyle itself as the Bible of the new traditionalism. Full-page color ads appearing everywhere to pick the soft, expressive face of a female, Ivy-educated 30-something. Once a lawyer or a stockbroker, she has rethought her choices. A banner headline runs above her earnest, pretty brow. She was looking for something to believe in. And guess what she's found? Her family, her home, herself. Thank you. Thanks. And that's at the beginning of Torpor in the 30-something chapter and then that chapter is followed by the Anthropology of Unhappiness. And this was another very ironic part of your book, is that Sylvie is pushing and encouraging her husband, Jerome, to write the Anthology of Unhappiness, which she believes will lift some of the unhappiness. <laughs> That's right. If he could only write the book, The Anthropology yes. of Unhappiness, he could get a promotion at his job and they could move back to New York City and have a baby and be happy. You know, and the idea of focusing on an anthropology of unhappiness is hysterically funny as well as quite sad. Well, yeah, yeah. But, you know, his background, child survivor of the Holocaust, makes it completely impossible for him to ever write the book. You know, a common experience of trauma is that the traumatized person can't talk about it. That's the very nature of trauma. And if they could talk about it, they wouldn't be traumatized anymore. And then later on in Torpor, in the chapter entitled The Revolution Will Be Televised, I'm wondering if you could read for us from that. Sure. Um, this is the part about, you know, their, their romanticization of upstate New York. She and Jerome both knew each other's deep capacity for sentiment. And for years, they observed the Adirondack countryside as if it were an artifact left only for their pleasure, as if the world outside their car had been displayed within a great vitrine. They saw rows of pachysandra planted in neat rings around the fruit trees. Apple blossoms on the road to Harrisburg quivered frailly in the April breeze, and it was at times like these their torpid state would escalate to the allegoric splendor of a medieval painting. Objects shone with meaning, and they understood these signs. And yet, ultimately, just gazing didn't satisfy them. They needed to possess things. They needed evidence that the symbols of the life that passed them by could be cared for and protected. They foraged and they bought. They scavenged 50 lilac branches from the roadside, wrapped them in wet paper towels, and put them into mason jars as vases. They salvaged armchairs from the dump, shopped for fabrics reupholstered. 
in Thurman each new day held boundless possibilities, and Sylvie would exhaust herself in finding them till they stumbled into night. She became the interior decorator of their deeply sublimated fantasies. Still, eventually, this was not enough. Habitation gives the landscape shape, but alone with just their little dog for company, she and Jerome moved through it like ghosts. They needed an infusion of fresh blood, someone to tell stories to besides each other. Without a child, it was difficult to maintain this artificial paradise, and so Sylvie's enthusiasm became increasingly passionate and manic. White impatience planted beside a garden path of flagstone from a nearby quarry. Strawberries and rhubarb, the month of June, animal gut dried and threaded into snowshoes. Chris Krauss reading from her novel Torpor. Well, thank you very much, Sabrina. It was really good to talk to you, too. I have been speaking with writer Chris Krauss about her most recent novel, Torpor, published by Semia Text. She is also the author of Aliens and Anorexia, I Love Dick and Video Green, Los Angeles Art and the Triumph of Nothingness. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell with assistant producer Babe Howard. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artell. Safe travels. Good evening and welcome to WJFF's Making Waves. Making Waves is an hour-long radio magazine program that airs every Monday night at 7 on WJFF. You'll hear segments brought to you by our volunteer team of audio producers. Join us every Monday night at 7 on WJFF's Making Waves, home of the Kingfisher Project. That's Making Waves every Monday night at 7. Voters in six more states head to the polls with more crucial delegates at stake. Let us win the Democratic nomination and let us transform 